0: text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 19, if you want to turn there. 1 Samuel 19. The title of the sermon is, If God is for us, who can be against us? And in light of that, uh, Sam has asked me to read uh, a passage from Romans 8, so you don't need to turn there. Go ahead and turn to First Samuel. But hear these words from Romans 8, starting at verse 28. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, as we Come to Your Word now. Lord, I pray that we would see how awesome of Savior You are. God, I pray that these truths would help our faith grow. We know that faith comes by hearing and by hearing through the Word of Christ. And so, God, I just pray that Your Word this morning would strengthen our faith in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, two young men who grew up in Watertown, South Dakota, Chad and Ryan Arnold, Uh, I don't know if you know that name. The Arnolds are well known in Watertown. Uh, Two brothers that uh, were a few years older than myself uh, grew up. One of them became an orthodontist. His name was Ryan. Uh, and, And worked with his father in his father's orthodontist office. The other one, moved to Colorado, Chad, the older brother. And I don't know if you're familiar with their story, but Chad was diagnosed with a liver disease that uh, was incurable that just was uh, killing his liver. And he got to the point to where the doctor said you're not going to be able to live very much longer. Uh, I mean, within weeks, we got to do a liver transplant and uh, his brother Ryan tested positive uh, to be a match for him and so you had this beautiful story of, of one brother going to have 65% of his liver uh, taken out and given to his brother and his liver would grow back and hopefully his brother's liver would take on uh, this new liver as they cut out the disease part Um, and so they had a camera crew there to videotape an interview before uh, and after this this beautiful picture of brotherly uh, self-sacrificial love Um, and so they took the liver from uh, Ryan the younger brother and uh, and then put it immediately into his brother. And as Chad, the older brother, was waking up from surgery, his father, his sister-in-law, Ryan had a wife and three children, were all in the room and and their family was there. And uh, Chad's dad came up and grabbed his feet and said, "Uh, Chad, i got some bad news for you. This is quote his exact words. Ryan's gone, but we still serve a good God. And as Chad recounted that, Chad says he couldn't have said it any better. And so we see this picture that to the world seems to be shocking, how could God be good in light of such uh, tragic circumstances? Well, by the grace of God, that family understood what I hope we all learn today uh, from 1 Samuel 19 from Romans 8. And uh, if you look at your notes, you can see how uh, this chapter is broken up in those first five points. We get to see David miraculously or in an amazing way saved five different times in one chapter through instruments of God. Through people who act on. David's behalf providentially uh, to save his life. And what we're going to do is we're just going to read through together and I'll make a few comments, but I just want us to see how God providentially is working in David's life. As soon as David was anointed by Samuel as God's chosen king, No one knows it yet. Everyone sees Saul as king. Immediately, the Spirit rushes upon David. Now get this, and David's life gets crazy. His circumstances in his life all go haywire. The Spirit of God rushes upon him and his life begins to get crazy. We saw some of that last week. Let's look at uh, chapter 19. Let's see how Jonathan is the saving instrument of God to save David. In verses 1-7, through And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. So let's just stop here. The king is having a private meeting The important people are invited in to a closed door meeting and the king has a plan. We're going to kill David. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out to stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause. He's saying, Dad, don't you remember when the giant fell, how you rejoiced? And now you want to kill David? Don't sin against this man who has not sinned against you, he says. Verse 6, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, He shall not be put to death, and Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. Now this is remarkable in a couple, for a couple of reasons. The one person that's threatening Jonathan's reign as king is David. David. And Saul seeks to solve the problem of David by killing him so that his heritage as king, his kingdom can continue. His family can be on the throne. You would think Jonathan would want to secure his position as king, but as we saw in chapter 18, Jonathan gives his sword, gives his robe, gives his bow to David as the sign of, I submit to you. You're going to be the king. And so we see this is nothing short of supernatural. That Jonathan, what type of work would Jonathan have to have on his heart for him to want to do this? And then David doesn't get much rest. Look at verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. Now, two words have shown up here that are going to show up in just a couple verses. Struck. He struck them with a great blow so that they fled from him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in hand and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night." So once again, as David goes out as commander of of a group of soldiers that fights the Philistines for Saul, once again he has victory. Saul becomes proud. And as David struck the Philistines and they fled, Saul grabs his spear, throws it at David. In a sense, David saves himself by ducking out of the way getting out of the way from the spear, and it says the spear struck the wall and David fled. The provision of God a second time to preserve David. And then look at verse 11 as we see Saul's daughter Michael and David's wife save his life In verse eleven, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. I just want you to feel David's a real person. He's he's been in a lot of dangerous situations in his young life. Can you imagine what it would be like learning the king is after you to kill you, then to be brought into his presence, then to dodge a spear, and now to find out that when you flee to your home with your wife, you're not safe there. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, Tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael led David down through a window, through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image, and this Hebrew word here I think means household idol, which it makes you curious why in Michael's house there there would be a household idol like the pagan nations, but Michael took an image. And laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with clothes. So, one of two things is happening here. She's either putting this household idol under the covers to make it look like to to give the covers a picture like someone's laying in there, and then obviously she put some sort of goat's hair thing up towards the pillow so it looked like David's head. Maybe some commentators say, well, they would put the household idols in the bed of sick people so that they would be healed. So maybe that's what you would do if you wanted to make it look like your husband was sick. We don't know for sure, but you get the picture of what she's trying to do by David. time. And verse 14 says, And when Saul and his messengers are, are, when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he is escaped? We remember David is Saul's enemy. Why? Because he fears David. He doesn't fear the Lord. He fears David. And your enemies become, or your fears become your enemies. That's what we talked about last week. But here he says, why have you let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And we get a little hint of Michael's character here. And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? In a sense, she's saying, you know how he can be a brute? He threatened to kill me, so I let him go. But we see the preserving hand of God once again preserving the King whose kingdom is promised to continue forever. Be saved. Let's look at the fourth way. God uses people to save David. Look at verse 18. Now David fled and escaped. He came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Now this would be a great comfort. This is three miles away. If there's anyone on the face of the earth that could give sympathy to David, Samuel's feared for his life already at the hand of Saul. Saul. And so he goes to a godly man. He goes to the one who privately anointed him, chose him, the youngest of all sons. He goes to Rama, And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. Now, Naoth just means the dwelling tent. So it seems like they went and lived in a place of worship Uh, there in Ramah, and it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. So so get the picture. The king has a fugitive. The king's servants are given a mission. David has escaped. He needs to be killed. This is the picture. This is what's going on politically in Israel. So he sends servants to take David. And when they, and look at verse 20, then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, and Samuel was standing as head over them, so they don't even see David the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they prophesied. This is amazing. The king's killers are coming to kill David But the Spirit of the Lord, when the prophets are prophesying in Ramah, you remember earlier when Saul came to see Samuel and this band was prophesying, Saul himself prophesied with them. Well, you can imagine the frustration of Saul. Well, if these yahoos cannot get the job done, then I'm going to come get the job done myself. Look at verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah, and he came to the great well that is in Seku. This is a central place to get water for several of the cities around uh, the area. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? People from Ramah would have to go there to get their water. It would be a good place to figure out this information. And one said, Behold, there at Naoth and Rama, and he went there to Naoth and Rama, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, and as he went he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Rama, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all day and all that night, thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets which we have heard earlier? Now there's much more pictured here than we might think. We don't know what prophesying looked like necessarily here. If this was singing, truths about God, if this was speaking truths about God. We knew before that there was tambourines uh, the first time Saul prophesied. But what's interesting here is the political king of Israel is coming to kill God's chosen king of Israel. And even as he comes the king takes off his royal garments and humbles himself to the point where he's naked and God gets glory for himself. All day and all night, the king has no clothes on and the God of Israel will be worshiped and his king will rule. Five different times in one chapter, David is saved by the providential protection of God. And I think there's two main things we can gain from this. First of all, know the comfort of God's gracious providence by meditating on God in His Word. Now get this. The charge is to know the comfort of God's gracious providence by meditating on His Word. The reason why you and I need to wake up in the morning and read chapters like 1st Samuel 19 is because you learn something about God when you come there the number one question you ought to ask God to reveal to you when you read your bible is let me learn more about you and when we ask that question and read this text we see such comforting providence now let me let's just think about this for a moment both david's allies and his enemies are working for his good in this text the people that love him are working for his good his Greatest enemies are working for His good because God is doing something. If God works to preserve David to this extent and David is preserved to point us forward to the son of David, Jesus, then Jesus came to do what? So do you get... Do you get the question? If God goes to this great extent in this chapter and so much more in the chapters to come to preserve David's line so that these links in providential events that just stack onto each other, we look at five in this chapter, there's already been so many and there's going to be many more, they're all leading to a son of David, Jesus Christ, for what is the question? If God is working this amazing providential salvation, both with allies and enemies, what's it culminating to? What's it culminating to in Christ? Ultimately, this providential work leads to the salvation of sinners. God sends His Son as the ultimate Savior from the greatest enemy. You see, Saul represents a physical enemy that wants to kill the body. There's a greater enemy than someone who wants to kill your body. It's sin. And God's justice demands that sin be punished. Your greatest enemy is your sin and a perfect God. But in this link after link of providential working, it culminates where Jesus Christ can save you from your greatest enemy, sin. And notice how when Jesus went to do His saving work, God used Jesus' enemies. The Jews, the Romans, Pilate, Herod, even his own family telling him he's crazy. God used Jesus' enemies and suffering to accomplish His salvation. See, one of the questions is, if God is, controls providence and He's sovereign, then why do things get more difficult for David as soon as God is shown to be actively working in his life? Well, you could ask the same question about Jesus. Why did Jesus have to suffer so much? Why did He have so many enemies? Why did God decide to work through all these difficult things to culminate in this great salvation? All this providential saving so that we as sinners can be saved from our sins and that Romans 8.28 can be true. So get the picture. All this saving, all this working, so that Romans 8.28, God speaking through Paul, through the Holy Spirit to us, we can actually find comfort and begin to understand Romans 8.28. I want you to turn there with me. I want you to see something with me. What if it's true that Romans 8.28 is in fact true? Here's what we read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let me read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Note, it does not say, and we know that for those who love God, all good things happen to them. Who are called according to his purpose. That wasn't true for David. That wasn't true for Christ. But rather, there's a promise here that we know not necessarily what God is doing or how He is doing it or that we get all the why questions of our life answered. You probably won't. You don't become a Christian and the Holy Spirit doesn't come to you and say, well, here's why this and that happens. I just watched a video on the headlines yesterday. A 26-year-old soccer player running full speed across the field Tip over on his back, all of his teammates come, watch him take his last breath. They're not going to get all the whys to that happen to why that happened to him and not to them. But here's a promise that we're given, that we know that God is working good. You see, David's life, if you were living this chapter, you would not think. You might be amazed that you keep escaping, but you would have a better idea on how your life should go. How you would do it if you were God. But it, it builds up to these promises that are absolute gold for us who are in Christ. And then, if this is true, no matter the circumstances God is working, whether they seem good or seem bad, we know that someone much smarter than us is working. We don't have to know why if we know who our our circumstances are in the hands of. Why does He work them for a good? This is key. Look at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. Listen. Listen. God puts every circumstance you'll face in your life Sovereignly and providentially. If you love God, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And if you look at that top statement in your notes, notice it says, be conformed into the image of His Son who conquers through suffering. One of the ways you'll be most like Christ is when you continue to stand through absolute hell on earth by faith in a faithful, loving Father. The good times show you something about God. The bad times show you something about God. And part of what it shows you is the fact not that you get the answers, but that you just continue to stand. He preserves you through suffering as you're looking forward to a greater hope. And so the purpose, God's purpose is not to give you an easy life now. God's purpose is to conform you into the image of His Son. Your difficult marriage. And they're all difficult because you're all human and you're all sinful. Your difficult marriage, your difficult coworker, is sovereignly placed into your life by the kindness of God to conform you into the image of His Son. But you cannot believe that unless you read your Bible because you will not feel it. You will not feel like that's how it should be. But here's my question. If the chain held all the way up to Christ. Is the link gonna backfire now? See that that's what the rest of this text is asking. Let's read on. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the foundation under Romans 8:28. Before you were born, God knew you. God predestined you. God called you, and your glorification is as good as done. That's how I can tell you Romans 8.28 is true. If I'm that involved in your life before you're even born, you can trust this promise. And then, I'm telling you, if you don't live your life in the fortress of the god of verses 31 or 28 through 38 or all of chapter 8 you're crazy it doesn't get any better than this listen what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us at the end of chapter 19 david can he can you find another enemy that's going to succeed against him If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Here's what he's saying. The most valuable thing in the world to God is His Son. And if God gave His Son for you, how is He going to fail to give you the fullness of all things through Jesus Christ? Do you think that He's going to give you the toughest thing to give His Son and then fail, have His Son go through the death on the cross and then have His death come up bankrupt so that you end up disappointed in God and in His Son? Never! Paul's saying, absolutely not! He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? (laughs) I love this. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the One who died. More than that, He is the One who was raised, who sits at the right hand, who indeed intercedes for us. God's own Son dies. He's raised up. He's, at, he's our advocate before the Father. But not just that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, does that describe your life? If it doesn't right now, it will. Or persecution or famine or nakedness. See, the question could be, what are you talking about, Sam? Christians are starving in certain places of the earth. So get his argument here. Famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Kind of sounds like we're being conformed into the image of Christ here. No, now here's the key. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Here's the amazing thing. Not from these things we are conquerors, but in them, we come out the other end either in this life standing or we'll be standing with Christ if famine or nakedness or sword takes our life. But in them, we are more than conquerors. Because here's how it works in the kingdom of God. Suffering comes before glory, just like it did for Jesus. We're being conformed into His image. Your suffering and your circumstances are not... God's commentary that He doesn't love you or care for you. Rather, in all these things, you will be and are more than conquerors. You can't get any greater enemies than the ones described. And you take the biggest onslaught of suffering and enemies and you come out more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. It's not in your power. It's in Christ. You think that was David's power when Saul started prophesying and stripped himself naked? It was by the power of God. And then he says, In verse 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life. Now, tell me if he explains everything here. Neither death nor life. Sometimes we wonder what's worse, living or dying. Well, neither of those, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation that's all everything by the way will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord now listen he wrote this to a church for a reason is because this is the battle of our life you will not naturally believe these promises. That's why he wrote this letter to the Romans and to the Christians. The battle of your life is going to be to interpret your life through a sovereign God who providentially is working for your good. You don't just go away from the sermon and say, oh, thanks for the new glasses. It's called the fight of faith. That's what Paul called it at the end of his life. He called it dying to Himself daily. Putting to death His flesh, His natural bent towards thinking God doesn't love us. God is going to forsake us. Maybe the cross isn't going to come through for us. I just want to give you a few words from Peter here to finish off this point in 1 Peter 4. You don't need to turn there, just listen. Here's what he says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. (laughs) I love it. One of your weapons is your brain. And one of the ways we need to arm our brain to have a weapon is to recognize that Christ suffered in the flesh, so we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of his time of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. He's saying in Jesus' death, your sin died. And if your sin died with Jesus then you can begin to live for His will knowing you don't have to earn your salvation anymore through the grace of Christ. And then a few verses later in verse 12, he says, beloved, he's talking to believers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what we do, don't we? God, what are you doing? Did you fall asleep? Do you realize the mess of my life right now? Peter's saying, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange is happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Why? Because what's our purpose? To be conformed into His image. If we get to suffer because we're like Christ, praise God. Or even if we suffer in a fallen world as Christ suffered in a fallen world and remain standing and faithful, praise God. And then in verse 19 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter, here's what he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Let me read that again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Because here's the temptation. If you suffer and you don't think God is providentially working for your good, then what will happen is, is you won't trust in a faithful Creator. You'll doubt Him. And you won't do good. You'll quit trying because of all the pain. But if we recognize He's a faithful Creator and we entrust ourselves to Him, we can continue to live on for God's will. I'm going to give you a nugget to go look at for the sake of time. We don't have time. Psalm 59 is what David wrote. He wrote this song when he was on the run from Saul's servants who were seeking to kill him in chapter 19. And if you want to know what David was singing, go read Psalm fifty nine because here's what he was he is singing God is my fortress, God is my protection, God is my help. so go read psalm fifty nine second charge second thing we learn is hear the warning and folly of fighting against the Lord. look at how foolish it is when we act like Saul, and we know we're going against the Lord's will and we're fighting against God. Listen to me. We as Christians can keep areas of our life where we know are sinful and want to protect them. And I just want you to hear the warning that we ought to get from this text. For one, look how foolish it is to rail against God. Do you think you're going to win if Saul cannot win? He's much more powerful than you are. So humble yourself and repent. Trust God. Walk in step with the Spirit. Cling to Christ as your only hope. Invite God as a protector, not as your enemy. to encapsulate this charge, to hear the warning, let me read to you Psalm 2. And here's how we'll close this morning. Here's what Saul should have heard. Here's a song that would have done Saul much good. It's a psalm that will do us much good in fighting our sin, in trusting God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. All these attachments of God, let us cut away. Let us rid ourselves From Him, let us take our life into our own hand. He who sits in the heavens laughs because it's so stupid to fight against the Lord. So stupid. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He'll speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, "'As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord says to me, "'You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions.'" for His wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. There's two people in the world. Those who kiss the sun and say, You're Lord of my life. I want to follow Your will. Help me kill sin. Help me not to rail against You. And there's those like Saul who stubbornly are going to challenge God And as fast as a 26 year old can be running and fall dead, if they fall dead apart from Christ, they're going to see the wrath of God mount up to their destruction. So the message is easy. Come to the refuge. Cleft of ages, or rock of ages, cleft for me. Come comfort yourself and find comfort in God so that He won't be your enemy. Christ has paid for your sins. Christ has purchased Romans 8.28 through verses 39, all of chapter 8. It's, It's all great. Becoming sons of God for you. My prayer is you will not rebel, but you will trust God even in difficult circumstances, you're going to have to live it by faith. Father, help us. It's so easy to think you don't love us because we suffer for a little while, and yet you tell us we suffer for a little while, but then eternal glory, eternal riches in your presence that'll never end. Father, let us not be fools. Let no one here leave here with a stubborn, rebellious heart that leads them to fall away from a living God. But I pray, Lord, that in Your grace we would be humbled so that we would kiss the Son and live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.